Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sambhasambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sambhasambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sambhasambuddhassa Buddhang namang sanghang namasami had an interesting and unexpected experience in the Bhikkhu Vihara office today. I don't know if this will lead to a Dhamma talk or not, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. I was reading about uh, neurotransmitters for some reason, and became interesting, interested in the chemistry of digestion. And that led me to an interesting, because I was having some digestion problems. Um, anyways, I ended up watching videos on chemistry on YouTube uh, until I kind of woke up and I, what am I doing? I'm, <laughs> and I'm watching uh, these various chemical reactions being demonstrated on, on YouTube. The, uh, the YouTuber was uh, using chemistry to extract bismuth, which is a metal, from Pepto-Bismol. And I found the, the idea of it fascinating, so I watched him. Like, do this. He, he, he ground up like 480 Pepto-Bismol tablets and ended up with like 50 grams of bismuth. I don't know what he did after that, but it's like when I get to that point, that's when I kind of woke up and realized what I was doing. In reflecting on that uh, episode, I was thinking about it a little bit while I was meditating here. Came up to came to mind a little bit, some aspects of it. Every time anything happens in your mind, if a word comes to your mind, like uh, the word bell striker, or a song is going through your mind, a theme song for some movie that you watched, or words from a conversation that you had return to you. The words that you said to somebody come back. Our minds are recreating for us those episodes with memory. And memory is an interesting aspect of mind because we depend on it so much. Whenever anything happens, if you hear a sound, or I say, again, 
a word, a word that I said a few minutes ago, bell striker. You recognize it because you remember I said it before. When I say the word, the image of bell and striker both come to your mind. That's part of the process of understanding the word. The same thing goes for every memory that you have. The mind, in effect, has to recreate or has to create images, impressions, and other aspects of understanding to allow you to comprehend your experience of a word, an image, a memory, a thought, an impulse, anything at all. Even in a simple little tiny word like bell, implied in that is everything that you've ever known about bells, the roundness, the sound they make, the strikers that they have, the fact that humans create them, all the phrases and terms that are connected with bells, clear as a bell, the sky was as clear as a bell, bell-like, bell-shaped. And you can't understand that word without a lot of background that's there, implicit, in that moment of understanding. When you understand the word bell, you also understand things like sound, movement, up and down, because bells are always being supported by something or hanging from something. Uh, aspects of energy, the fact that bells require being struck, uh, the act of hearing, the experience of hearing something, intentionality. All these aspects of our human experience, each one of them ripples out into our consciousness. And our consciousness thereby contains the entire world. The whole world of our human experience is implicit in just the single word, bell. Each moment of our awakened consciousness, as we're sitting here, paying attention. The whole world, our whole existence, is implicit in this moment. Everything that's ever happened to us, and everything that we fear might happen, or we anticipate might happen in the future, is radiating out from this very moment, right now. Our minds are a rich field of potential for memory, association, and creativity. And in that, there's both allure and danger. The allure is all the things that we can have that will give us pleasure, interest, and happinesses of various sorts. All the delicious, nicely shaped, beautiful, 
wonderful experiences that the world has to offer that we've tasted. Once we've tasted it, we might look forward to tasting it again, to feeling it again, to hearing it again, seeing it again, or seeing something like that, or better than that. So our minds are primed to anticipate and look forward to, to lean into, as it were, the future and all of its rich potentials for gratifications of various sorts. They're also primed to be afraid of all the things that can go wrong, all the painful touches that could come to us, all the difficulties, all the trouble. When something comes through the door or the phone rings, we can feel a chill. Because of everything that's ever gone wrong in our life is also implicit in the unfolding moment. And so we also have an impulse to lean back a little bit. Our minds have this dual inclination. We're biased in one way or another by our character, but we're always being pushed around by both our delight in the world and our fear of the world. By all the bad things that have happened to us and all the good things that have happened to us, they conditioned our minds to be this responsive, sensitive, reactive, experiencer, anticipator, looking forward to and being afraid of. Every moment of experience has this potential in it. And it's a little stressful, actually, to live at the very edge of anticipation of what will happen next. We can't really maintain it very long. So we pretend our minds have an inclination to kind of zone out, um, to sink into a presumption about we already know what's going to happen next, to experience things like boredom and dullness, disinterest, as a way of mm, not living on the edge, as it were, because the edge has both that positive and that negative tension in it. This is part of our dilemma. We're pulled by both the potentials of pleasure and pain, pulled and pushed, you could say, and also drawn towards sinking away from it all into dullness, distraction, sloth and torpor. And yet we can't escape. We can't escape from the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment. Even dullness can't really save us from it, because something will come along and require our attention. And so we're constantly being dragged out of our bed, as it were, by the demands of our lives. Even just having to get up to pee represents that, that element of our life constantly demanding our attention, requiring 
our presence. We have to attend. We have to be there for it. And so we're living in this potentially difficult situation of wanting and not wanting, being alert and awake and heading towards sleep. A cycle of sleep and wake colors our lives, our days and nights are going by at any given moment. We're somewhere in this cycle looking forward to the next thing, looking forward to the next meal, the next sleep, the next day, the next word, the next season. And the alternative is to stay right here in the present moment where things are actually unfolding and are actually real, rather than in our minds, anticipating and dreading and falling asleep and being dragged awake. What the present moment has to offer is most usefully understood as its own solution. Rather than being mere spectators or reactors to what the present moment is offering us, there's this potential to become the knowers, the understanders, the fully cognizant, wise experiencers, neither dreading nor grasping at, neither falling asleep, nor overexerting our attention, simply observing with wisdom how the moment unfolds, what happens next, how the mind reacts. We don't need to control our minds. Our minds aren't really fully ours to control. But our minds are what we experience. We can see how the mind is touched by pain and pleasure and how it reacts. We can understand how conditioning works. We can start to put together the picture of how action, words, intention, trains of thought that take place now will bring about results in the future, or how such things in the past are bringing about results in this present moment. As we continue to observe this, it becomes more and more thoroughgoingly evident that we can't really control, we can't really direct what will happen, but we can thoroughly know what is happening with wisdom. When choices are presented to us, we can become wiser and clearer and more compassionate in the way that we react to both our own difficulties and suffering and the difficulties and suffering of others. 
And this creates this virtuous cycle of understanding leading to wise action, wise action leading to good results, good results leading to peace, contentment, harmony. And this peaceful, contented, harmonious outlook leading to even deeper understanding of how things work. In some systems of thought, Buddhism is classified as a religion. But a religion almost always has some sort of central God figure around which the understandings of the religion are centered. Even this word Buddhism didn't exist 150 years ago, the idea of an ism. It was simply this collection, this teaching of the Buddhas, the teaching of the Buddha and those who were following his teaching. There was just the triple gem. The Buddha, the awakened one, the teaching that he taught, and those who have practiced it who are practicing it and who, who want to practice it. The Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. All three are here right now, present for us to frame our experience through. When we make the effort to understand the doctrine, those aspects of the teaching that can seem a little arcane or self-evident on first inspection are actually more like holographs. They're rich, layered, and sometimes mysterious and surprising what they will reveal. you can discover that suffering is not a problem. Suffering is your greatest teacher. Suffering is an ally. Suffering points the way out of itself, if it's understood correctly. Suffering is also a trap, a danger. And so it requires alertness and attention and the right tools in order to grapple with it. Otherwise, if we're defeated by it, we're its victims. The Buddha sometimes said in the suttas in a couple of different places that if, we, if this or that aspect of our experience were absent, there would be no exit. Suffering is one of them. If we're constantly being reborn in experience, day by day, hour by hour, year by year, lifetime by lifetime, tumbling through the eons of existence, experiencing over and over again the same sorts of things that 
beings are subject to, birth and death. And there weren't this experience of unsatisfactoriness. Then we would be like dumb animals, and there'd be no escape. We wouldn't know suffering as such. There would be no possibility of it. But because it is possible to know and understand, it can be transcended. And in that sense, it's also our ally, our greatest teacher, even though it's the thing that we want to get away from, we wish wasn't happening. Nonetheless, unsatisfactoriness is the key to the kingdom, as it were. It's the way out. It's pointing the way out. So when we're attending <coughs> to our experience in the present moment with careful attention, it's not that we're trying to get our experience to be different than it actually is. More that we're trying to understand it through this framework, this, these references that the Buddha's given us. It can sometimes seem that the whole point of practice is to try to get your mind to be quiet, to drop into silence, to stay there. And that's the end. There's a lot of talk about things like samadhi, and meditation, concentration, jhanas, depths of peace and quietude that the mind potentially can touch. And these things are definitely part of the teaching. But they are a means to an end. They are not the end itself. The end itself is to be able to live in the ordinary moments of human life. With all of its difficulties, all of its unpredictability, all of its challenges. With a certain contentment and peace and ease and uh, lightness, freedom from needing it to be any other way other than what, the way that it actually is. A freedom from unsatisfactoriness, from finding that What's happening right now is, in one way or another, less desirable than what you would like to be happening instead. When the mind's in this balanced, accepting, wise place, then physical pain is not a problem. Emotional difficulties are not a problem. Loss is not a problem. Aging and death are not problems. Because all those things really only happen in the mind. Our actual experience is contained within this very narrow moment of right now. And right now, everything that we can know in our mind includes the unsatisfactoriness that's potentially there the desire to escape. That desire is intimately bound up with and is actually the other, the backside of the face of that coin of unsatisfactoriness. Our unsatisfactoriness of our lives, of our moments, the things which drive us to try to make things different. These forces in the mind 
are driven by desire. So desire and unsatisfactoriness are really just two sides of the same coin. The first and second noble truth. The noble truth, the first noble truth being the noble truth of unsatisfactoriness. And the cause of this unsatisfactoriness is said to be desire or craving or clinging. It's the mind's attempts, it's reaching out, it's wanting for things to be different than the way they actually are. So the unsatisfactoriness and the reaching are really two aspects of the same mental phenomena. And this is a little puzzling at first. We have to study this in order to really understand it. And it's not something that we understand intellectually or dogmatically or in a scholarly sort of way. But in a very immediate, intimate, personal, right here, right now, in this very mind way. The same way that you understand what it feels like to taste salt what it's like to see the color red or what pain feels like. Understanding suffering is like that. Direct, personal, somehow even a little mysterious and only to be really understood and known by looking right at it and paying very careful attention to it over and over again until your presumptions about it, your preconceptions about it, your fears and beliefs about it are all set aside so you can simply confront it directly. And when you see the connection between suffering and desire, right there is where you get to see the first and the second noble truth operating in your very mind, right in front of you. And the opportunity presents itself to also experience the third noble truth, the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. Because in truth, in order to exist, in order to be, in order to have that whole human life rippling out from this moment of hearing the word bell, the mind has to have a certain belief, attitude, stance, set of unexamined preconceptions about the way things are. And those preconceptions are bound up with this grasping and clinging that leads to suffering. Those things are something that we're choosing to do with our mind. Not out of any sort of unwholesome intention. It's just the way things have worked out. We've learned this very young, how to be a human being. Nothing wrong with it, other than this disadvantage of constantly being unsatisfied and therefore wanting it to be different. You could say that's suboptimal. 
But when we are willing to really look, really study, be very, very patient, examine over and over again how suffering comes about, what it really feels like, how it's connected to what we're doing with our minds, how one thing leads to another, how cause and effect works in direct experience. Sooner or later it dawns on us how these things all fit together and where the key to it all is the way that we hold our views about ourselves and the world and that there's volition in this holding. It can be seen on course levels when we have a strong opinion about something like the nature of another person, their beliefs about us, our beliefs about them. And if we're suffering over that, we can see that we can simply stop believing that and our suffering can cease. In order to stop believing something, we have to give up a part of ourselves, as it were. It's not that we have to give up our knowledge, our intellect, our understanding, our intelligence. We simply have to give up our clinging to a belief as somehow being absolute, unquestionable. Somehow fundamentally true, even though it looks true to us. I once had an experience with a fellow monk who I felt treated me with something like disdain, maybe even bordering sometimes on contempt, as though he looked down on me felt he was superior to me. But I could see that he wasn't superior to me. I was as smart or smarter than he was. His only advantage over me was he was senior. He had more years in robes than I did. And so he would talk down to me, and I would resent that. So this whole dynamic of feeling opposed by somebody and opposing back was based on this exact activity in my mind of viewing that person as having certain opinions and beliefs about me and taking those seriously and then having seen my own reactions of uh, indignance and indignation, indignation and uh, anger and resentment and uh, wanting to get even, um, maybe even the feelings of humiliation, getting triggered by this interactions with this fellow monk. Those two are just beliefs based on mere beliefs about myself. So the beliefs that were happening in his mind, the beliefs that were happening in my mind in reaction to it, purely mental events. The actual physical events taking place in the actual world were a few words here and there, a few glances, a few bits of body language, trivial stuff in the, in the scheme of things. 
And yet there is a lot of suffering in my mind because of it. Eventually, one day, because of my good fortune of coming across this teaching and watching my mind, I saw the whole thing unfold like a slow-motion car accident happening in front of me. This monk looked at me and said something. I heard the words, and I saw my mind react. And for just a moment, I could see that I don't have to react. I'm only reacting because of what I think it means. So this is our challenge. We meditate to teach our minds how to be still and how to be alert and observant, how to learn from experience, how to see cause and effect. Because when there's not a lot happening, we can catch more of the details if we're paying attention. As we train our minds in this way, we can become more alert more attentive to relevant details in our day-to-day life. And we'll see all the opportunities for letting go, for doing it differently, from not following the script, not following the beliefs of our minds, and finding the freedom of just the open-endedness, the actual indeterminateness of our circumstances that we don't have to be pushed around by them. We can simply respond to them with wisdom and appropriateness as they present themselves to us and not before. We don't have to anticipate anything. We don't have to worry about anything. And then we can just relax and be natural and enjoy our lives. And then our lives will become something like a blessing for ourselves and for the people that we interact with. Because we won't be tormenting ourselves and we won't torment others. So this is the non-religion of the Buddhist teachings. You could call it philosophical, you could call it psychological. But it's even deeper than that. It's more than both of those things but it includes them both. And any, any trick in the book, any tool in the toolbox, toolbox is valid if it produces results. We're really lucky to be born human be able to understand what the Buddha taught, to be exposed to his teachings, to have the wit to recognize it as something valuable, to find ourselves with this opportunity for practice. The teachings have arrived here and now where we've arrived. 
And so we have this tremendous opportunity, a big one welling up for the community now too. Winter retreat's coming, right around the corner. So I offer these words of encouragement. Andalayang Dhammakataya Sadhu Karangadama Sadhu Sadhu Sadhu